Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee visit rightrug.com that's r-i-t-e-r-u-g.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you 24-month financing is available with approved credit for 90 years we've been right here right now right rug flooring Hey guys, Ready or Not 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it means the absolute world to have your support. What are you waiting for? Become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Hi, I'm Matt Stoller, author of Monopoly-focused newsletter Big and an antitrust policy analyst. I have a great segment for you today on this big breakdown. So this one's about something that antitrust enforcers just did to help you get a higher paycheck or make it easier for you to get a new and better job. Also, what I've noticed is that a lot of you like to get involved in politics in a meaningful way. So I actually have an action that you can take and I'll have instructions in this video on how to do so to strengthen the law and help your liberty. Okay, so let's start at the beginning because this one has to do with the workplace. From slavery and indentured servitude to minimum wages and unionization, the relationship between work and control have always been core questions in American history. And frankly, all human history, but I live here in America, so that's what I'm gonna talk about. All right, so today we're in a modern society. In one way we ask these same questions about work and control is by talking about employment contracts the agreements between workers and their employers. Now, we've come a long way. Generally, you don't see the kinds of abuses that used to be common in American history anymore, and I'm not just talking about you know, slavery and segregation and all that stuff. For example, in 1907, more than 3,000 workers died in coal mine accidents, and that was pretty normal. Railroads, and it was, a, it was a total mess. In the 1920s, the brother of the Secretary of the Treasury was caught saying that you couldn't run a coal mine without machine guns. So, Things have gotten a lot better today, but that doesn't mean that they are perfect. Today, 40 million Americans are bound to something called a non-compete agreement, which is a provision of an employment contract that stops people from leaving their job and going to work for someone else. It's a pretty good chance that some of you watching this video, many of you actually are bound by a non-compete contract. So a lot of people are bound by these things, and it's a weird restriction that is relatively new. I mean, it's called a non-compete. 
How is that even legal, right? Non-compete. Non-competes are not totally new. They've actually been around for centuries, but traditionally they've been pretty rare. In the 20th century, non-competes applied to high-level executives, the proverbial CEO with access to Coca-Cola's secret recipe. But over the last 20 years, this has changed. Let's take a listen to the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, Lena Kahn, who is the enforcer that took the action that I'm talking about on this video with regards to non-competes. These clauses may have started in the boardroom, but today what we see is that they proliferated across sectors and across income levels. So we're talking about nurses, we're talking about fast food workers, janitors, but also physicians and engineers. And we've now seen that in the aggregate, these clauses can really restrict competition, both in labor markets, but also in product markets. And so our economists calculated that collectively, American workers are earning around $300 billion less because of these non-competes, and that on the whole, innovation and entrepreneurship are right. suffering. Okay, so what happened? Why did these things become more common? Well, the reason that it was the lack of usage back in the day was simple. Employment contracts themselves were rare. Contracts were expensive to produce and not really worth it. Uh, today, putting forward employment contracts is as simple as copying and pasting text from a model contract found online. There are computers. At the same time, stricter arbitration laws made written employment contracts more attractive to employers. So today, as Chair Khan noted, these agreements are now in almost every industry, finance, medicine, printing, floor installation, title and escrow work, software, NASA contracting, computer, uh, antivirus research, video game production, et cetera, et cetera. 30% of hairstylists work under a non-compete, as do 45% of family physicians. Okay, now there are some limits. The first is geographical. Let's take a look at a map. These contracts are already unenforceable or restricted in many states, like California, Colorado, Illinois, Maine, Maryland, New Hampshire, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Oregon, Rhode Island, Virginia, and Washington. And a lot of non-competes are never enforced and barely noticed by the employer or employee. They're, they're boilerplate in the contract and no one pays attention. But that's not always the case. And being bound by a non-compete can be awful, especially if you live in a certain place and you have a, a very a unique skill set. These contracts are written under the assumption that an employee and employer are bargaining in a relatively equal position over the terms of work. But it's usually the case that the employer has a lot more power. Sometimes employees don't even know they're signing or, or aren't in a position to refuse. You agree to a job, and then on your first day, you get a big packet of stuff to sign, and in there is a non-compete. You can't say no at that point. Now, in some states where non-competes are legally unenforceable, employers still use them. They threaten employees who don't know any better. So one former employment lawyer told the FTC in a comment, employers routinely use the burden of litigation to intimidate employees or seek revenge for the employee's perceived personal disloyalty rather than to protect any legitimate employer interest. It's not all employers who do this, it's just some of them, uh, but it's still really bad for people who have to deal with that. A lot of people are stuck at jobs where they're sexually harassed. Doctors are constantly complaining that they're forced to work in a bad practice, but cannot move because their family is rooted in a particular area. Economists increasingly agree that non-competes are bad. For instance, you know this, this is Florian Ederer, who's, a, who's an economist at Yale, uh, but there's a ton of, of economic research at point, this point showing that how bad it is. One study, for example, showed that when Hawaii stopped enforcing non-compete clauses for high-tech workers, earnings of new hires increased by about 4%. But there's lots of studies like that showing kind of across the board. It's not just wages. Non-competes also prevent would-be entrepreneurs from starting companies or recruiting different talents. You hear from a lot of small businesses, I can't hire people because pe the people I would hire are have non-competes. 
Um, and we have a historical example of, of how useful these bans on non-competes can be. So California has not allowed the enforcement of non-competes since the 19th century. And that is one of the key reasons historians think for the fostering of Silicon Valley. Without that state's ban on non-competes, for instance, top semiconductor engineers could never have left their original employment at the legendary company Shockley Semiconductor to formed Fairchild Semiconductor or Intel. Now, there is a real argument for non-competes. It goes like this. If you're a business, why would you train someone if they can just leave your firm and take that special knowledge and customers worth, customer list with them? And this is not an outlandish point. However, these kinds of possibilities are better covered with non-solicitation agreements that prevent you from stealing customers or trade secrets law that prevent you from telling secret stuff to anyone but your existing employer. Now, other practices like paying employees more over time or treating them better can stop people from leaving to go to competitors or reduce them from leaving to go to competitors or setting up shop on their own. As for the idea that non-competes would reduce investment in, no in knowledge-based industries, because companies wouldn't want to train people anymore. Well, that's just empirically not true. California exists. Silicon Valley is in California because we doesn't allow non-competes. And so that kind of undercuts that claim. Also, and this is kind of like a special thing that I think is pretty amusing, non-competes are banned among lawyers because they are considered unethical in the legal profession. And lawyers, that's a healthy knowledge-based industry. Imagine that, lawyers writing special rules, exemptions for themselves, but not for everyone else. Two weeks ago, the government acted. This is a picture of the Federal Trade Commission, the regulator that is supposed to police markets and ensure fair competition. I love this building. Now, the FTC just said that non-compete contracts will soon be illegal. Under their proposed rule, all non-competes would be unenforceable. Existing non-competes must be canceled and employers have to tell employees those agreements are null. Moreover, attempts to get around this rule by using non-disclosure agreements or other similar kind of agreements that make, basically make it possible for people to leave are also banned. So this is a huge deal. And politically, the reaction to this rulemaking was overwhelmingly positive. People across industries noted how helpful this change will be. And it's not just a pro-worker initiative. A lot of business people were very happy about this change. I'm gonna pick a random standard industry. There's lots of chatter across industries, but here's shipping. This is Steve Cox, who is the president of Steam Logistics, talking about what it will mean for his industry. I think it's unbelievable for our industry, uh, for our young people in the industry to, to, to retain talent uh, in logistics specifically. Uh, we see a lot of 22-year-old kids signing things that they don't know they're signing, and a couple years later they want to go after a better opportunity, more money, uh, and to improve themselves, and they can't do that, frankly. And then they have to spend a couple years out of the industry, and, and they're gone. They're in another industry uh, uh, making a living there, and we never get them back. So talent-wise, uh, we'd love to keep and retain people in logistics. Uh, so I love it. I absolutely love it. Really what this rule is doing is it's getting at a philosophical question about how you're supposed to do business, whether business is about controlling people or whether business is about having the liberty to trade and make better products and services. And politically, it resonated widely. The president and the vice president chimed in. So did a bunch of, sh of senators from both parties, a lot of business people, workers, doctors. But there, of course, there were opponents, too. The big business lobbyists at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce were hostile, and the Wall Street Journal called it Lena Khan's non-compete favor to big labor. And they will no doubt litigate in the courts to try to get judges, conservative judges in their estimation, to strike down the rule 
for a variety of procedural reasons. And the pro-monopoly representative at the Federal Trade Commission, who's a Republican commissioner, Christine Wilson, I'm not saying all Republicans believe this, but Christine Wilson does, she opposed the rule and laid out the basic legal arguments that are gonna be used against it. Essentially, the FTC doesn't have this authority to write a rule like this, a regulatory overreach. And also, she said the quote, unquote, scientific data isn't conclusive about the effects of non-competes. All sort of procedural stuff that's refusing to take the, the arguments on the merits about whether non-competes are good or not. Essentially, what she said is a long diatribe that was, how dare you change something? But the thing is, Christine Wilson, Chamber of Commerce, Wall Street Journal editorial page, they're not in charge. Lena Khan is. So what happens now? Well, at this point, it's just a proposed rule. And when an agency acts and proposes a rule, there's a window of time, in this case, 60 days, where anyone from the public can tell the government what they think. And the government has to take their feedback into account before finalizing the rule. So you should do that. You should tell the government what you think. A lot of corporate lobbyists are. And we've set up a site that can help you do that. It's called bannoncompetes.com. And that should make it easier. We'll just show you how to do it. But you can also go to the government site at regulation.gov and do it there. You do it anonymously if you want. Uh, both links are in the description of this video. There's already about a thousand comments, even though the links just became live yesterday. And there's gonna be a lot more. Tell the FTC what your experience is with non-competes or just whatever you think about them. And they'll take your comment into account. They'll finalize the rule. And then 180 days after the rule is finalized and voted on by the commissioners, it'll go into effect. And when the rule kicks in, it'll, it'll have impacts immediately because thousands of employment lawyers will be explaining to their clients how to comply with the rule. Standardized contracts that include non-compete sections by default will be edited to remove them. And business leaders will start to recognize that non-competes are no longer lawful. As the rule kicks in, the fight will head to the courts. And that's a fight for another day. There's lots of other stuff that's gonna happen as well that I can go into. But this is the beginning of a big fight about whether non-competes are gonna be in our economy or not. Now, it's important to take a step back and recognize what Chair Lena Khan, along with the fellow commissioners named Rebecca Kelly Slaughter and Alvaro Bedoya, who voted for the proposed rule, just did. They took a blatantly unfair practice that affects tens of millions of people, and they banned it. That is governing. That is wielding power in service of the public. They also took the idea that employers are allowed enormous control over their employees and contractors and said, that's not how we do business in America. The government no longer allows it. The government's job, our government, the job is to ensure liberty from coercion in all its forms. And for the first time in a very long time, the Federal Trade Commission acted like it. Thanks for watching this big breakdown on the Breaking Points channel. If you'd like to know more about big business and how our economy really works, you could sign up below for my market power focused newsletter, Big, in the description. Thanks and have a good one. 7,000 nurses have been out on strike in New York over chronic, massive understaffing that is putting the nurses themselves and also obviously the patients at risk. We do have some breaking news this morning that a tentative deal has been struck. Um, of course, the nurses themselves will have to then vote to approve that deal. So we'll see whether they ultimately do that. But in the meantime, uh, we've been very fortunate. Two of our partners here at Breaking Points have done phenomenal reporting on this story. Let's go ahead and start with the lever and put this report up on the screen. This is from uh, Matthew Cunningham Cook, fantastic reporter there. His headline is, as nurses strike, 
hospital CEOs pocket millions. And just to give you some of the details here, you know, these hospitals that uh, nurses were striking at, these are technically nonprofits, but they operate as if they are gigantic corporations. And as Matthew points out, their CEOs are making millions. So uh, Mount Sinai CEO Kenneth Davis made 5.6 million in 2019. Montefiore CEO Philip Ozua made 7.4 million in 2020. Um, they also provide first-class airfare, chauffeured limos, so the work. So the idea that these hospitals, which have been making huge profits, and which, by the way, we, the taxpayers, shipped a lot of money to during COVID, um, that they could not provide additional salaries or staffing for these nurses was always preposterous. At the same time, we had Jordan Sheridan of uh, Status Quo, one of our other great partners, on the ground talking to the workers themselves. Let's throw it to Jordan, who can give you a preview of what he was able to learn. Hey, it's Jordan with Status Quo News. Right now, there's over 7,000 nurses on strike in New York City at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx and Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan. They're on strike for a lot of the same reasons nurses across the country have gone on strike in recent years. They are being flooded by double, triple the amount of patients, but no staffing increases. On Monday, we went out on the ground to Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan, where we spoke with nurses who talked about a toxic environment in their hospital, where they are in many cases out of beds and treating patients in the hallway. They also spoke about normally they might treat one to three patients on their floors, but in the most recent years have been treating seven to nine patients. They spoke about not being able to go on break. They talked about uh, having to apologize to their patients for the lack of quality care because they are overwhelmed and don't have the proper amount of staffing. Here is our reporting from Mount Sinai Hospital. Save staffing now! Save staffing now! Save staffing now! during the pandemic than now because we are severely understaffed more now than we were in the pandemic. And so much so that we're taking double, if not triple, the amount of patients that we're, that we're supposed to be getting. And we were over, over 500 vacancies at this hospital alone. And that's just unacceptable to take care of uh, New York City residents. Yeah, so on my floor, we're supposed to have one to three, but we can go up to one to, one to six, one to seven. And it's, it's just unbearable, and it's unfair for the patients, and it's unfair for us. And more importantly, it, it's just these two catastrophic uh, uh, results. I say union, you say town. Union. Town. Union. Town. Union. Town. union. Town. My name is Williams. I'm the public advocate of the city of New York, and I'm more than proud to stand here with you while you fight for what's right. about the patients, the patients. That's what they've been talking about for all these years. Yeah. They've been saying the same thing. And what we have known is that the higher-ups who don't want to make the most basic concession have been abusing the love that these nurses have for their patients for far too long. So if you clap the pot, if you call them a hero, if you said thanks, just show them some money. That's all. They deserve it. They carried us through this pandemic, and we're not over yet. We're in a tridemic yet, right now. We're in a tridemic right now. 
funding off of health care in this hospital. All we're saying is share a little bit with some of the people who make this place run, who make people feel better, who get people healthy. Why do we have to be out here right now? In the middle of a tridemic, there's so many other hospitals who made sure that we didn't get here. I want the media to make sure when you tell the tale that it is the higher-ups on Mount Sinai that we're standing in right now, not because of these nurses. These nurses helped us for many, many years. They risked their lives for many, many years. When we didn't know what the hell was going on with COVID, they were in there risking themselves, risking their families, bleeding because they only can get one mask, begging and pleading for masks. And now you have to make them stand in the street for a contract in the cold? That ain't right. Shame on you, Mount Sinai. Shame on you, Mount Sinai. Well, I work in the labor and delivery unit as well as the postpartum unit. Um, and our staffing conditions fluctuate depending on the day. Um, at some points, um, we are completely full. Patients don't have beds to go to. Uh, and we're running around, you know, in unsafe working conditions. And then there's other days where everything's okay and we have we can we can give the care. So I think the biggest thing is that I understand the difference of safe staffing versus not safe staffing because when we are in those days where we cannot provide the care, when we are stretched to our limits, we feel that we are doing our patients a disservice. And we have the days that are good. We know that we can provide that care, and we see the difference in our patients. We see the difference in what we can provide. me that California has uh, the grid where they have to have a certain amount of nurses for the patients. How come New York City doesn't uh, uh, provide by that? I have no idea. I think that's why this is not being finalized because they don't want to agree to something that if they don't meet the grids, they'll get penalized in some way. So I think that's why we're striking because the last contract, they had this whole action plan. They had this whole thing in action, but nothing nothing to make it actually work. So they said, we'll have these grids, we'll meet these whatever, we had these ratios, but we, we fill out process of assignments every week and what, what happens to it? We fill out the paperwork and nothing happens, it goes nowhere and it's just, 
it's a lost cause. <laughs> I would really just love for everyone to know that nurses really do become, we become nurses because we love people, we care about people, especially labor and delivery. It's not about the money. We, they offered us the money. If it was about the money, we wouldn't be out here. We'd be in there, we would be working. It's not about the money. We want to take care of our patients. We want to be able to give our patients the care that they deserve. And it's a 12-hour shift. It's not right that we work for 12 hours straight. You can't sit down to eat. You can't go to the bathroom. It's, it's just not right. Hey, it's Jordan with Status Coup News. Make sure to subscribe to our channel on YouTube. Recently, as part of our partnership with Breaking Points, we went out to cover a protest among hundreds of Uber drivers after the company successfully sued to block a wage increase, the first increase in wages in many years for Uber drivers. Let me give you a little bit of the backstory. This was in New York City. Uber filed suit against the city's taxi and limousine commission seeking to halt a new rule that would raise driver pay from 2019 rates by 7.42% per minute and 23.93% per mile. The company claimed the increase set to take effect in late December would have forced it to shell out an additional 21 to 23 million per month and raise rider shares by 10% amid the holiday season. Big picture, Uber's revenue is up 72% in the third quarter of 2022 compared to the prior year. So obviously this is a company making plenty of money and could probably afford to increase its driver's wages. But we went out to cover the protest. We heard really powerful stories from drivers, some of whom were driving 13 to 14 hours straight, many of whom were working extra jobs on top of Uber or Lyft and were struggling under the weight of inflation. Here is our on-the-ground reporting from the Uber strike. I'm a driver advocate. The mayor knows who we are. We got a petition to reform the Tax and Limousine Commission. Many council members signed that petition, including Eric Adams, including Jamani Williams. We keep inviting them, we text them, we email them, and they're not out here. They don't show up. Somebody's got to ask those questions. Why are they not here? We're two weeks away from Christmas, and look at what Uber's doing. Taxi Limousine Commission approved of minuscule a minuscule raise for the drivers. And here comes Uber trying to stop it. We didn't even get 25 cents. It's around 23 cents, 24 cents. It's an additional nine, it's an additional 22 cents on the per mile and about five cents on the per minute. We didn't, we didn't hit 25 cents. And the reason they do this, the reason they do, they being, you can't blame them. They're smart. They're being proactive because this is gonna affect future raises, understand? So it could have been a nickel that we're fighting over. There's Uber still would have sued, you know, because for them, it translates into millions. For us, it only translates into pennies or a few dollars. But we need, we gave the TLC a proposal in 2020 to give drivers $2.50 a mile and 50 cents a minute. The problem with the driver in New York is that people think that we're like, uh, like a Kmart job, like a, like a $15 an hour job, a minimum wage job. No, we're small business owners. Just like the bodega, the pizza shop, the bakery, we are small business owners. The only thing that our storefront is on a set of wheels. But many people come into our storefront and we're all over the city. We're essential workers. I myself worked throughout the pandemic. Instead of doing 25 trips a day, I was doing three trips a day. And I still went to the hospital. Was not afraid to go to the hospital. I got COVID two times. And that's, it's, it's this, they would not do that to any other working class people. They wouldn't do it. There's just so many 
immigrant workers in this business that and there's a language barrier it's so easy to get over on them very easy do you feel like they're using and exploiting you guys oh of course of course this is this is not the this is not boo hoo the poor taxi driver oh boo hoo we need more money that has nothing to do with greed has nothing to do with greed this is new york city i'll tell you what the seattle uber driver the seattle uber driver is making more money right now than the New York driver, including if we get that raise. So the Seattle Uber driver is making $1.38 a mile and 59 cents a minute. The New York driver right now is getting $1.16 a, a, a mile and 52 cents a minute. If we get the raise, the, the per mile is gonna go to 134 and the per minute is gonna go to about 56. Now, why is it not the same across, across that's, the country? That's, that's, the, that's the thing that we, that it boggles the mind. It boggles the mind. Anybody, anybody could do the math. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling. We'll get back and fight them. Because we got the power, we got the strength, we got the faith. So we want, us, we want them to see us. We're here to let them know we need respect and they should give it to us. And we will get our respect. We will. At the end, we will. That's right. Because we are families. We should be able to spend time with our families, get vacation with our kids. Because we go out there every single day to make that happen. We want to take our kids to college, give them education they need in the near future. That's why this fight is for us, for all drivers across the country. Right. That's right. So Uber, we're here in front of your office to let them know that we're here to get what we need and what we deserve. Good afternoon, folks. It is almost hour 14 of this Uber strike. My name is Jocelyn. I worked very hard with the New York Taxi Workers Alliance to get our taxi medallion debt forgiveness program won. But it's time our Uber drivers get the money that they are owed and deserve. That's right. Yes. Not just because it's the holiday season, but the labor that our drivers provide is essential and necessary not only to keep the city functioning, but to keep mega corporations like Uber functioning and wealthy. We see time and time again corporations like Uber boast about record profits every single year. But we know that record profits are just stolen wages from the working class of our city and our right. states. Right. It is essential that Uber makes good on the promise and the work that the Taxi Workers Alliance has done to win this raise that the city has already approved too. Every hour that Uber does not approve these wages is another hour that these drivers spend in the cold, in dangerous climates, sitting in rain, in snow, in traffic for hours, just to feed their families, get their children to college, and make an honest living. There's no reason why anyone should be driving or working any job for 15 to 20 years and still be struggling to make the rent. There's no reason for that. So I have shut off my Uber app today. I will continue to keep it shut off until this raise is won. I'm proud to stand with the union members here today and ensure that we win the race for all and get our Uber drivers the money that they deserve. Thank you. 
Hey there, my name is James Lee. Welcome to another segment of 5149 on Breaking Points. It is my first video of 2023, and I want to take a few minutes to revisit a topic that I'm very passionate about, which is health and nutrition. To start, let's examine a few data points. Rates of obesity in America have skyrocketed over the past 50, 60 years, up to a point now where over 30% of adults are considered obese, and another 30 plus percent are overweight meaning that all in all, more than two-thirds of adults in the United States are either overweight or obese. Now, we all know obesity is linked to a bunch of different chronic illnesses, one of them being type 2 diabetes, so probably not surprising. The rate of diabetes in the U.S. has also skyrocketed over the past 50 to 60 years. If you look at this chart, diabetes, extremely rare back in the 50s and 60s, but now we're talking about disturbing numbers like roughly 10% or more of Americans today are diabetic, and even more are considered pre-diabetic. So is there something about nutrition, the food that we are eating that is severely impacting our health and causing us to be fatter and sicker than we've ever been in history? This right here is a dead man who's about to change the world. Dennis Burkett was a world-renowned scientist that liked to study poo. He would study different types of poo. He would weigh it, he would measure it, he learned everything he could possibly learn about poo. He noticed that the people's poop in Europe and the United States was very, very different than the people's poop in Africa. The poop in the US and Europe often looked like this, or like this. It was lumpy and hard. Whereas the people in Africa had poop that looked more like this, and it was a lot smoother and softer. The people in high-income countries like the United States and Europe had a bunch of health problems that the people in Africa simply didn't have. After living in Africa and studying this phenomenon for more than 20 years, Burkitt came up with a hypothesis as to why Western countries are getting so sick. Burkitt attributed these diseases to the small quantities of dietary fiber consumed in high-income countries due mainly to the overprocessing of natural foods. Burkitt figured out that in high-income countries, we have severely fiber-deficient diets. One of the first signs and symptoms is constipation. Long-term, fiber-deficient diet can lead to colon cancer, diverticulosis, appendicitis, varicose veins, diabetes, obesity, allergies, breast cancer, prostate cancer, IBD, lots of problems. We sure have talked an awful lot about science over the past several years. This, however, is probably some of the most fascinating research I've come across, but for some reason, it gets almost no coverage, and we have to wonder why. Nonetheless, I did find this on the NIH website, quote, since Burkitt's death in 1993, his hypothesis has been verified and extended by large-scale epidemiological studies, which have reported that fiber deficiency increases the risk of colon, liver, and breast cancer, and increases all cancer mortality and death from cardiovascular, infectious, and respiratory diseases, diabetes, and all non-cardiovascular, non-cancer causes. So we know for sure that fiber intake has a huge impact on our overall health and well-being. More proof, this is from the Mayo Clinic, benefits of a high-fiber diet. It normalizes bowel movements, helps maintain bowel health, lowers cholesterol levels, helps control blood sugar levels, aids in achieving healthy weight, helps you live longer. So once again, if fiber has so many health benefits, why are we removing it from all of our favorite foods? Everyone in the world is familiar with white rice. What most people don't know is that rice actually looks like this. Around a grain of rice is something called bran. That's the fiber. The white part is called the endosperm. 
we only eat the endosperm. Now let's look at wheat. Wheat looks like this. This is the wheat bran or fiber that we take off the wheat so that we can make products like this. Show me any carbohydrate in nature and I will show you that God and Mother Nature intended that carbohydrate to be covered in fiber. When you take fiber out of food, it makes it much, much hard to fill up. So you eat and eat and eat and never get full and buy more of the product. Those are literally all of my favorite foods. Rice, for obvious reasons, but also corn, bread, sugar. For some reason, they're nothing at all like they appear in nature. We have been duped. It's profitable to sell food that is fatty and sugary and salty and addictive. It's much less profitable uh, to sell um, food that is wholesome, that is high in fiber uh, and is uh, minimally processed. So what's driving the obesity epidemic? It's corporate profit. Is it not extremely frustrating that so many solvable problems in our society stem from the fact that solving that problem would necessarily disrupt a very profitable financial scheme. Quote, many of these ultra-processed foods are almost pre-chewed for us. They melt in your mouth immediately. There's no protein, there's no water, there's no fiber slowing them down. It's gonna hit your taste buds and light up your reward and motivation centers of the brain immediately. Then there is a secondary hit of dopamine when it gets absorbed into the body. That doesn't even sound like they're talking about food anymore. It's like they're describing some kind of super drug that they genetically modified to hack our brains. Ultra-processed foods have something else in common with nicotine. Some of the biggest producers of processed foods were, from the 1980s to the end of the 2000s, known as big tobacco. In 1985, R.J. Reynolds acquired Nabisco for $4.9 billion, and Philip Morris acquired General Foods in a $5.75 billion deal that was then the largest takeover in U.S. history outside of the oil industry. Philip Morris added Kraft to its portfolio in 1988 and rebranded itself as Altria in 2003. By the time Big Tobacco began acquiring food companies, they had decades of experience studying and optimizing the speed with which their products delivered nicotine to the brain. They continued to harness that science in their food products. This is really some story of American business ingenuity using science, using the might of big tobacco to turn our foods into another addictive drug. What an engineering marvel. In 2010, Michelle Obama launched a campaign against child obesity. The first lady lent her sassy sachet to move your body, aiming to set healthier standards for food served in school lunchrooms. We send our kids to school. Uh, we have a right to expect that they won't be eating the kind of fatty, salty, sugary foods that we're trying to keep from them when they're at home. Unfortunately, you know, Michelle Obama was on the right track right from the beginning. And then I think she got derailed by a mixture of bad advisors and by bringing in the food, co the food companies. And they were able to dilute her very powerful message down to something where, you know, it's just her on t television encouraging people to, to move that way rather than let's move together, uh, you know, as a movement uh, to be able to, to transform the food system. Eat better became move more. Not saying moving more is not a good thing, but this example, I think, perfectly encapsulates the Obama legacy, does it not? It seems to always start with perhaps the best of intentions, promising to stand up for people, to right what's wrong, but for some reason, they just could not escape the temptation of corporate grift, which ultimately doomed any real chance of them 
actually challenging entrenched power. But the FDA, as a lot of us already know, is in large part funded by the biopharmaceutical industry. 54%, $3.3 billion comes from the federal government, but the other 46%, $2.8 billion, come from user industry fees. This is based on the latest available data that we have. Just think about that incentive structure we have in place. The FDA, who are supposed to advocate on behalf of consumers, is itself in large part funded by big pharma. And big pharma's profit streams are necessarily predicated on the existence of sick patients. So wouldn't it be great if one third, half, two thirds of Americans were quote unquote sick? CNBC. Analysts love Eli Lilly for its potential blockbuster obesity drug. And we do too. Diabetes. The U.S. accounts for nearly half of global diabetes drug sales. Could there be some sort of global conspiracy of food and pharmaceutical executives and regulators and dark rooms devising ways to make people sick? I cannot say. But what I can say is there's so much money to be made here. And in order to make this money, people must first be sick, be obese, be diabetic. Whatever the case is, I do not think we can refute that there is a certain economic benefit of normalizing something like obesity. Companies, they aren't promoting body positivity because they desire a more healthy society. They are doing it because it is very financially lucrative to do so. So lots of momentum across various industries and sectors, private and public, to sit idly by and watch all the fiber be quietly removed from our diet. One final fact about fiber, just for a point of comparison, according to Duke University's Global Health Institute, a hunter-gatherer group, the Hadza, for example, typically take in approximately 100 grams of fiber per day, about five times more than an American adult usually gets. But hey, I think you should eat whatever you want to eat. My point, my goal for today and for 2023 is to just provide you with important information about what I think is really going on by following the money in the food industry, in the regulatory environment, in big pharma, wherever else, to empower you to make the best decision for you. And that is all for me today. I hope this segment was helpful in terms of connecting the dots between something like the proliferation of low-fiber foods with the underlying desire of big food to maximize profit at the expense of public health. If you did find this helpful, I would encourage you to check out my YouTube channel, 5149 with James Lee. Tons of videos on there, breakdowns on many different topics like this one. The link will be in the description below. Of course, don't forget to subscribe to Breaking Points. And thank you so much for your time today. See you in the next one. I'm Maximilian Alvarez. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Real News Network and host of the podcast Working People. And this is the art of class war on Breaking Points. I want to start off this segment by wishing everyone out there a safe, restful, and love-filled holiday season. To borrow a phrase from the great Kurt Vonnegut, I hope each and every one of you is able to take some time back over the holidays to be with the people and do the things that make you brave and kind and healthy and happy. I also want to give viewers and listeners a warning up top that today's segment deals with the topics of bullying, harassment, and even suicide. If you are unable to continue with this segment, I completely understand. If you are able, however, I want to ask you to help us spread the word 
because this story is important and more people need to know about it. A year and a half ago on my podcast, Working People, we published an interview with the family of Evan Seyfried, which was, to this day, the hardest interview that I've ever recorded. I spoke with Evan's mother, Linda, his father, Ken, and his brother, Eric, about his life, about the beautiful person and hard worker that he was. And I spoke to them about the tragic and unforgivable events that led to Evan's death. As anyone who knew him can attest, Evan was a loving son, brother, and friend, and a dedicated worker. For 19 years, with a virtually spotless record, Evan worked at a local Kroger grocery store in Milford, Ohio, where he eventually became the dairy department manager. From October 2020 to March 2021, however, Evan suffered a torturous litany of bullying, harassment, and sabotage, according to a lawsuit filed against Kroger by the Seyfried family. As the lawsuit alleges, it was this treatment which was the result of a conspiracy involving numerous actors, including management-level supervisor Shannon Frazee and Joseph Pig at the Milford store, that caused Evan to eventually suffer a transient episodic break and take his own life. For the Seyfried family, nothing can ever replace the loss of their son, Evan. And as always, I want to send them my love and solidarity, and I want to thank them for sharing their story with me so openly and bravely, even though it was incredibly hard and painful to do so. While the Seyfrieds fight to pick up the pieces, and while their lawsuit against Kroger is moving through the courts very slowly, a group of volunteers, family friends, and community members have come together to honor Evan's life, to hold Kroger accountable for his death, and to fight the scourge of workplace bullying, which affects millions of workers around the U.S. and beyond. Through my podcast, Working People, through my work at The Real News, and even here on Breaking Points, I've done my best to cover the story of Evan's tragic death and to lift up the valiant struggle of the Seyfrieds and the Justice for Evan Coalition to make sure that Evan's name isn't forgotten and that no one has to go through what Evan and his loved ones have had to go through. And I'll be honest, it's been a real struggle to get the story out there. But because the Seyfrieds and their supporters have refused to give up, because they have kept pushing over these two years. That may be changing. While Kroger continues to stay unforgivably silent, asserting that it can't comment on ongoing litigation, a recent cover article about Evan Seyfried for the Cincinnati Inquirer, which was syndicated across the country, including for USA Today, has given Evan's family and the Justice for Evan Coalition a renewed sense of hope that they will secure the justice and accountability that they have been fighting so tirelessly for. To talk about all of this, I'm honored to be joined today by Jana Murphy and Erica Erskine, the two founders and co-organizers of the Justice for Evan Coalition. Jana, Erica, thank you so much for joining us today on Breaking Points. Well, thank you so much, Max, for having us, and uh, we just appreciate your listeners so much tuning in today. Well, it's a real honor to have you both on the call. And, you know, just, just to sort of make sure that the breaking points, viewers and listeners have 
all the essential information from the jump. I wanted to, you know, build on my introduction and ask if, if you guys could first tell folks a little more about yourselves and how you got involved in the Justice for Evan fight. And if you could, you know, help walk us through the events that led to Evan's death and the long fight to hold Kroger, Shannon Frazee, and Joseph Pig accountable. So, Jana, why don't we start with you? Max, uh, back in the winter of 2021, um, the Seyfrieds were living a normal life here in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, Eric Seyfried is a close friend of mine, and I am a close friend of the Seyfried family. On the night of March the 9th, um, after Eric and I had spoken briefly on the phone and everything was completely normal, and I woke up the next day to many messages from my friend as he was on his way from Portland, Oregon to be with his mother and father after his little brother, Evan Seyfried, has take, had taken his life. I'll jump to what family found out in the days following from Evan's co-workers at the Milford Kroger. Family was contacted by Evan's friends at Kroger and said, we have to tell you that Evan was murdered. And they told him, Ken Seyfried, Evan Seyfried um, about the relentless, fierce, horrible, unbelievable, it's unbelievable what Shannon Frazee and Joseph Pig, the, the campaign that they started against Evan. Um, Evan was a diligent, loyal 19-year Kroger employee. He was the dairy manager at the Milford Kroger. He had an impeccable record, and that record stayed completely impeccable, not only on paper, but also um, with Evan's loyalty to Kroger. And when Shannon Frazee became his manager at that Kroger, um, everything went to hell, literally. And... Um, your listeners and viewers can see the entire 31-page lawsuit on scripts.com, and we highly encourage them to read the lawsuit because due to our segment here at the time, we don't have a lot of time to talk about all the details. So in my mind, all the details are running. I'm trying to narrate it as much as possible. Um, months after this bullying campaign started with Shannon, um, some female employees, Evan was a whistleblower and female employees knew that he could help them when they had been sexually harassed by Joseph Pig. They had reported nothing was done. They came to Evan as a leader and asked for his help. Um, he did help them file reports and Joseph Pig then verbally in person threatened Evan that his information would be given out because Joseph Pig was the security manager at Kroger and Evan's personal information indeed was given out and he was sent messages to his phone. He was sent child pornography to his phone. He took his phone 
to his dad to take to a lawyer. Um, and as they were going downtown, Evan had an episodic break. Uh, this is a man with no prior history of mental illness. Um, and, um, and he, and he went to his parents' home, um, after and, um, he took his life in his childhood room and Ken Seyfried um, found him and, um, and then in the days following when the Kroger uh, employees came out and told the family what had happened. Then the family filed um, a lawsuit against Kroger. Thank you so much, Jana, for um, walking us through that. And again, for, for viewers and listeners, um, you can go check out the previous reporting that I've done, including more extended interviews with Jana, with the Seyfrieds, with Erica, um, where we give a lot more of that essential background to the campaign of terror um, that Evan's managers uh, waged on him for months isolating him, bullying him, sabotaging him, according to the lawsuit filed by the family, which as Jana mentioned, you can read uh, the full text of online. Um, and, you know, it's it's just fair warning. It's horrifying stuff. You know, again, uh, Evan worked at this Milford, Ohio Kroger for nearly 20 years, had a spotless record, had become the dairy manager. And then when he got these new uh, this new manager, uh, you know, his life became a living hell. And he, you know, according to the lawsuit, was was bullied and harassed and targeted viciously. Uh, even while Evan was standing up for his co-workers who were filing sexual harassment complaints, um, you know, Evan himself was getting, uh, you know, bullied and, and harassed by management. He was not getting the help that he needed from his union or from Kroger uh, HR. Um, and so, again, you can go check out all the details there. And Erica, I wanted to um, bring you in as well and ask if you could sort of talk about um, how you got involved in this campaign and, and I guess what happened with the campaign after, you know, the, the Seyfrieds learned about what their son had gone through before he took his own life um, and, and you know, filed the lawsuit with Kroger. What happened then as far as you and Jana and Justice for Evan is concerned? Well, our paths crossed, Jana and myself, uh, after I read the very first article that really came out, I think it was by the Washington Post um, back in July of 2021 after they, uh, the Cypress had filed the lawsuit against Kroger. So that's how um, I came to um, be a part of Justice for Evan. And uh, myself being a uh, employee of Kroger for over 20 years, um, it just struck a, a nerve with me. Um, and I something just was telling me like, you got to help these people. And um, because it's not just helping the family, but it's really helping the uh, Kroger workers across the country overall in dealing with this um, nonsense of mistreatment and bullying and organizational mobbing that um, is running rampant through this company. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, it's just say I had some skill sets uh, that I felt would be very, very useful. And that's how I came to be uh, one of the co-founders of Justice for Evan. 
And I mean, since then, the, you know, the online campaign um, to build, uh, you know, the Justice for Evan Facebook page, and, you know, that has grown by leaps and bounds. I know that there have been demonstrations, um, you know, in cities around the country while the the Seyfried's lawsuit against Kroger is slowly moving through the courts. Um, And I, I just sort of wanted to ask, uh, in the midst of all of that, um, how are the Seyfrieds doing? How are you all both and, and the other members of the Justice for Evan Coalition holding up throughout all of this? And, you know, as as you mentioned, Erica, like, you know, the Washington Post did cover this initially. And, you know, there have been a couple of stories here and there. But by and large, it's been, you know, working people. It's been great shows uh, like the Retail War Zone, um, you know, that have have helped kind of keep this story alive. Uh, But then we got sort of a blockbuster moment this past month where the Cincinnati Inquirer did a front page story on Evan's uh, case, and that was nationally syndicated. Um, So what has that meant for you all, the Seyfrieds and the Justice for Evan Coalition. So, how are how are folks holding up, and what does the publication of this new story by the Inquirer mean for the fight for justice for Evan? Thank you, Max. Also, want to go back uh, briefly and mention that Evan did go through all the proper channels when he reported, and he was completely ignored by the entire organization of Kroger. Um, and I really want to reiterate that to listeners: Evan Seifry did exactly what he was supposed to do. He always did. He was a highly ethical, beautiful human being. And he was put un- under people who were his superiors were not any of the caliber of near of a person that he was, nor any of the Seyfried's all. And the Seyfried family, Eric, Ken, and Linda are suffering. Evan was a tremendous loss, not only to the world, to this small, beautiful, wonderful family. They're just the nicest people. And any anybody who could possibly judge what happened to Evan by saying anything negative ever about him, then... I really want to encourage listeners to stand up to those people and say, read the lawsuit, you know, look at what this, this, look at what really truly happened. Um, and the Seyfrieds are suffering. I mean, they, they, Kroger has not said boo to the Seyfried family. I mean, this is, this is unjust punishment to a family by the largest corporation in the tri-state area that they loved and supported for many, many years and that their son dedicated his work life to. And this corporation doesn't have enough heart in it to even say one thing to the family, not even to say, we know that we're going through litigation, but here's a like we are, we are sorry, and we know that we know we need to change. I mean, they know this happened. They know this happened, and they don't have the courage to even come to the family. This family's been waiting since 
the summer of 2021 to hear something from Kroger, to hear anything. And there's been nothing. This family is is suffering. You know, this is another Christmas, another Thanksgiving. Because Ken and Linda are out in Oregon with, with Eric. They're a very close family. They're getting ready to celebrate another Christmas without Evan. Amy, Evan's girlfriend, is here in Cincinnati getting ready to celebrate another Christmas without Evan. There's, I mean, I use the word celebrate extremely loosely. They're grieving. All these people are grieving. And the fact that the Cincinnati Enquirer and an amazing journalist named Alex Coolidge spent so much time creating this beautiful, amazing article and piece and the research that that good human being did and the ethical standard that the Cincinnati Enquirer has shown is impeccable. It's amazing. And Evan would be so happy with the people that we have encountered <laughs> through this entire journey since we started Justice for Evan. And I encourage your listeners to get on the Justice for Evan Facebook page and look at the link tree that Erica has created. And they can see all of the events that Justice for Evan and all of our supporters and all of the help from all of the good people, including you, Max, and your amazing team, all the people who have done podcasts with us, all the people who have come out for the protests, all the people who helped us get through the national uh, protests March 9th and through the shareholder meeting last June, which was a monumental event because Ronnie McMullen actually read a prepared statement. He knew that he was going to be forced to do that. He did it. That was huge for the family. And then when the Cincinnati Enquirer article came out um, two weeks ago, how that came out first was uh, Ken Seifrey did a long interview with the Cincinnati Enquirer. And I get very emotional because I know the behind the scenes and how hard that was for him and how important that it was for him, not only to tell the personal story about what he and Candace, Linda went through that night and what they have been going through, but also to how important that it is for people to know what's going on at Kroger. And these corporate workers, they don't know what's going on at Kroger. They have no clue what's happening at the stores. And it is our mission to get that out there to the, to the public, what's going on in the stores. This can never happen to another employee again. It's not gonna happen on my watch. And it's not gonna happen on Erica's watch. And by God, we're going to make sure that these employees are protected at Kroger. And there are many good people at Kroger, many, many, and many good people who work on the floor. Eric works at Kroger. Amy works at Kroger. I know lots of great people who work at Kroger. But the people who are at the top at Kroger, it has been shown to us that they really don't give a crap about what's happening with the people on the floors. They don't give a crap. And we know that those corporate workers, they don't even know that, that the employees weren't even getting, getting paychecks. And I would really like to come back and do another podcast with you, Max, for Erica to, to do a lot more education to your listeners on like that about the, the paycheck issue and so many other issues that are going on at Kroger so that they can just continue to broaden our microphone, get our microphone louder, and so that because to the to, to how we are doing at Justice for Heaven, we are getting angrier as more time goes on. Our we are not getting tired. And that's what and we've told Kroger this since the very beginning. If you think we're going away, do you see us going away? 
we were front page on the USA Today at 3 p.m. on Friday. When that article came out as the lead story on USA Today with Evan's face looking down at his mother's cat, you know, that beautiful face. At 3 p.m., over 7,000 Americans were reading that story at the same time. After midnight that night, still over 300 Americans were still reading that story. And then it came out on the front page of the Sunday Cincinnati Inquirer and the Kentucky Inquirer of Evan's girlfriend, Amy, crying on the front page. And you open it up, and there is the biggest article ever in the Inquirer, the full two-page centerfold pictures of Evan and that and, and, and incredible piece that Alex Coolidge did. So we're not getting tired. Our fight is just starting. We're never going away. We are anxiously awaiting the day that Kroger is going to sit down at the table and admit this. And when they look at Ken Seifried and Eric Seifried and say, we know we were accountable for Evan's death, and that's the only reason why he died. There's a victory. Well, and, and um, Erica, I guess by by way of closing us out, I think um, you know Jana, you know, did a, a brilliant job, kind of laying out the importance of the publication of that piece. As you mentioned, Jana, folks can go to the Justice for Evan uh, Facebook page if they want to keep up to date with this, see how the movement's growing, get updates on future demonstrations that are going to be held. Uh, you can also find them on Twitter. Um, and, and Erica, I know that um, as uh, as you mentioned, you know, some as someone who is uh, an employee of the Kroger Corporation, which extends in so into so many different areas, right? Because Kroger's bought up like basically every other grocery store chain in this country, like King Supers, where workers were going on strike in in Colorado earlier this year. I know that that's been a big part of this campaign's evolution as well, right? Like connecting what Evan went through at the hands of Kroger management uh, and everyone down the line from Kroger HR to all the way to the CEO Rodney McMullen. Everyone failed Evan. And you guys are doing important work to sort of connect that to the ongoing struggles of Kroger employees around the country. So I wanted to just ask if you could say a little bit about that by and, and what folks can do to, to get involved in that effort by way of closing us out. Yeah, I, I kind of feel that um, we're, you know, more in in the loop than, um, you know, Kroger Corporate and, and HR is um, half the time because, you know, it seems like they really do not have a clue what goes on on a daily basis at the store level. That's where all the, quote, magic happens, as we say. Um, and they just they just don't have, have a clue. It's that they're just so detached from reality and it's seemingly more so as like the years go on, um, especially lately. And, you know, you mentioned the uh, 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 buy, buying up stores with, you know, the recent merger um, like with, uh, proposal with, with Albertsons. And, you know, with, with the way things have been um, at Kroger um, for a while, but especially since the onset of the pandemic, um, they don't have any business um acquiring <laughs> any more stores uh, and thousands more employees whose lives they could potentially um, ruin if they don't um, get this um, stuff in, in, in check. Um, so, yeah, I, I do feel that, you know, we're not a lot, like me personally, I, I don't I feel like I'm only doing my job, uh, my full-time job, 
um, plus theirs. Um, and really all it takes is they just need to open their eyes and, and their ears and realize that there's, there's some things, there's a lot of things that need to be fixed. And we are more than willing to, we're at the table. We've been sitting at the table. And the only way to uh, create this change is to literally directly sit across from the table with uh, people like Rodney McMullen and you know some of the key the key players um, in the head office. Um, but moving forward, we um, our our current uh, project is uh, our billboard campaign that we're currently crowdfunding for to continue to raise public awareness. And this time, we're literally going to raise public awareness right in downtown Cincinnati, um, right in Kroger's face, literally. So it's just an extension um, of Alex Coolidge's um, article in the Inquirer, which has had us um, busy um, responding to messages. We've gotten emails with even more people, um, employees in particular, coming out of the woodwork and saying, yeah, you know, I experienced similar things. I'm so sorry for you know, um, the Seyfried's loss, um, if anything I can do to help, just please let me know. So we, you know, we're growing in numbers and it's not going to stop. So it's, Kroger just needs to surrender basically and, and just start, start listening to their, their employees, because as Jana has reiterated many times, um, we're not going away and we're not tired and we'll do this until well, till the end of time, basically. So, um, and I, you know, it just, this work never gets easier. Um, but it does bring a, to me at least, a, a, a sense of reward knowing that I'm helping so many uh, fellow coworkers across the country who have had nowhere to turn, who have gone through the proper channels like Evan did, have been turned away, have been ignored, um, most of either quit or been terminated and that can't continue to happen. You know, people need paychecks, people have to live, people have to eat. And it's very ironic that, you know, in the grocery business, a lot of employees can't even afford to eat because they don't even make a living wage. So there's, there's a lot of things wrong with Kroger <laughs> that needs to be fixed, but, um, I do believe they have it in them. I really do. They have it in them. There, there are a lot of good people within the Kroger enterprise. There's a lot of good people. And those people need to start coming out of the woodwork also. Well, and, you know, I can't thank um, you and Jana for being two of those good people fighting as hard as you have for the Seyfrieds and for Kroger workers everywhere. Uh, it's really an honor to be in this struggle with both of you. And I just wanted to, to underline something that, that both Erica and Jana said for viewers and listeners. When I interviewed Ken, you know, Evan's father, Linda, Evan's mother, and Eric, Evan's brother, on that first episode of Working People, they explicitly pointed to Kroger's corporate policy as, you know, the, the reason for their son's death. They said that once, that Evan himself even told them that once Rodney McMullen took over as CEO, things changed at Kroger. It was all about the bottom line. Relationships with management really changed. It was about how much you could increase store sales at the cost of everything else. 
Ken, you know, Seyfried told me point blank, it is because of this sort of relentless corporate policy that my son did not get the help that he was asking for, that corporate didn't care about the treatment and the com- that he was receiving, the complaints that they were hearing about that treatment because the store, the store sales were up. So the family is, direct, is drawing a direct line between kind of Kroger's corporate policy and the hell that workers um, like Evan are having to endure at locations across the country. And so again, I can't thank uh, you both enough for for being part of this struggle and doing everything that you can um, to fight, uh, to hold Kroger accountable and to make sure that um, workers like Evan never have to endure this kind of thing again. So um, for uh, breaking points, this is Maximilian Alvarez signing off and uh, Jana Murphy, Erica Erskine, Uh, two founders and co-organizers of the Justice for Evan Coalition. Thank you so much for joining us today on Breaking Points. Thank you for watching this segment with Breaking Points. And be sure to subscribe to my news outlet, The Real News, with links in the description. See you soon for the next edition of The Art of Class War. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Solidarity forever. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.